Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome everybody to the Feathered Desert. And this, I'm very, very excited about this one. This will be airing in March of 2022. And since this month is Women's History Month, we thought we would talk about some more groundbreaking women of ornithology. So this is Groundbreaking Women of Ornithology, part two. <laughs> and <laughs> we're going to look at four women who are shattering previously held truths about birds through mind-blowing research projects. I know a lot of hype goes into saying mind-blowing, but these are really mind-blowing. They really are. So I'm going to start off first with Karen Odom, and she is studying bird song in female birds. Already your mind should be blowing, right? Because yeah. bird song is traditionally thought to be a male-only trait. This observation supported Darwin's theory for sexual selection, where the female chooses a mate based on the best male singer. That's so true. Right. This is not incorrect, but because we relied on this way of thinking for so long, we miss a crucial truth. And that truth is that many, many, many female birds also sing. I know. My brain is just running like a little hamster on a wheel right now. <laughs> <laughs> Karen Odom is one of the female scientists leading the way down the path of female song research and has seen female bird song in 1,000, that is 1,000, 141 species of birds from around the world. Wow. That's just... Woo. Um, it's a lot of misinformation. It's a lot of misinformation. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, the co she co-authored a presentation given in 2016 at the biggest meeting of ornithologists ever held in Washington, D.C. She discussed her findings in female birdsong with a group of international ornithologists and essentially blew the doors off what used to be thought of as an aberrant behavior performed only by a few females for some unknown reason. As she discussed her research at a roundtable on birdsong, Many of the scientists present, most of the male, began telling their memories of hearing and seeing females sing and started to think, maybe she's onto something here. So the reason that the male's only song theory persists is because the research is often restricted to the northern hemisphere, that's where we live, where many species of birds migrate, but there's only a small population of birds around the world. In the tropics, where most birds don't migrate and more species live, Males and females use song for the same reasons, establishing territory, finding a mate, and communicating with others. So currently, Karen Odom is a co-founder of the Female Bird Song Project. I was really excited about this one when I found wow. that out. And it is a citizen scientist initiative aimed at recording female bird song from around the world to establish a reliable database. I thought that was super, super yeah, cool. Yeah, something we can do. Yes. And if you would like to participate, you can do that. You can go to femalebirdsong.org, and I will put that in our show notes, and you can find out how you can participate. And don't forget, we actually have a female singer right here in our own backyard, and that's the Ebert's Towhee. Uh, these birds do not migrate, and the females actually participate in a duet singing with their mates. And if you want to know more about that, you can hear more about that in our Birds in Love podcast. All right. Cheryl's going to talk about woman number two. Yes. So I have the privilege of talking about Jessica Mac 
Lachlan? Yeah, McLaughlin, that's how I would say it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. I hope I did it right, <laughs> Jessica. I did you justice. Studying alarm calls. So are you ready for mind-blowing number two? For years, we have understood that the birds have specific calls that warn against predators, but we didn't know much more than that. So Jessica McLaughlin, our second groundbreaking woman of ornithology, is studying the inner workings of alarm, alarm calls. For her PhD thesis, she studied the calls of the New Holland Honey Eater of Australia. When the honey eater sees a predator, such as a sparrowhawk, it releases a volley of sound, warming, warning other honey eaters. Oh my gosh. That's a hard one to say, honey eater. <laughs> and other species of birds that a predator is among them. McLaughlin studied these calls in detail and discovered that the call, are you ready? That the call was made up of 96 different elements. That's just crazy. And each of these elements holds a different bit of information. If you know how to decode the information, you know everything you need to know about the predator that might be stalking you. Oh my gosh, we need this. I know, we do. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't give out 96 We don't elements. give out that we much information, no. <laughs> Getting the alarm out quickly is the key to surviving a fast predator like a raptor. Dr. McLaughlin discovered that the honey eaters can get the word out fast by using a two-stage alarm call. They front load urg urgency information in the first note of the call, so other honey eaters can respond in a blink of an eye. And then they follow this up with more information on how long to stay hidden. Oh my gosh. It's that's like better than what a lot of people say in a yes. 911 call, that's for yes. sure. Yes. To gather this information, she developed an interesting outfit to study the calls and behavior they influence. She, they probably thought she was a predator. Yeah. <laughs> she essentially strapped audio equipment and video equipment to her body so she could have her hands free as she walked around the public garden in Australia where she conducted her research. Visitors often thought she was a piece of art or a member of the police SWAT team. But her getup allowed her to piece together the amazing honey eater behaviors. Her research is really opening up what we know about what kind of information is contained in bird alarm calls. Currently, Dr. McLaughlin is studying how other bird species learn to recognize the alarm calls of other birds, essentially learning a new language. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Is that not like mouth jaw dropping? Yeah, it is. It's, it's <clears throat> so amazing. It's just crazy. And to think that, I mean, we've studied them and you'd think, well, we've studied alarm calls for years and years. We know everything there is to know. Apparently not. Apparently There's a not. lot left yes. for us and to know. And when they say bird brain, I take that as a compliment. Yes, absolutely. Me as well. All right. Our third groundbreaking woman of ornithology is Mary Caswell Stoddard. And she is studying avian color vision. Superpower. Superpower. I totally wish I had the superpower. <laughs> so birds can see well beyond human color vision. They can see color combinations that we are not capable of seeing, as well as seeing in the UV spectrum. Now, this is a quote from Mary Caswell Stoddard uh, in Jennifer Ackerman's book, The Bird Way. It's not just that they can see wavelengths of colors in part of the spectrum we can't see. It's that ultraviolet light is a fundamental part of many of the colors they perceive. End quote. So bird vision is completely different from anything we could ever experience. 
Darn. I know. Gosh, I totally <laughs> wish we could do that. So the question then is how do we study this phenomenon in birds if we can't see it? Dr. Stoddard developed a computer program called Tetra Color Space that allows her to use measurements taken with a spectrophotometer that determines the wavelengths of light reflected by an object. So Tetra Color Space allows scientists to estimate what that surface might look like to a bird. So we will never fully understand what the colors look like, but we know that there is so much more going on with birds' eye-popping colors than just what the human eye can see. And that's due to taking the spectrophotometer information and putting it into tetracolor space, and then it gives us information. So for example, the painted bunting, which is one of Dr. Stoddard's favorite birds, has a bright green back. And to us, we see the pretty bright green back. It looks like an incredible bright green. If you've ever seen a painted bunting, whoo, amazing. I've seen one out in uh, West Texas, and boy, they are beautiful little birds. Um, but when we put this under the spectrophotometer, it reads as green and a UV wavelength combined, which when run through Tetra color space, it appears to not be green at all, but another color altogether. Wow. So the birds are not seeing what we see at all. Oh, it's amazing. So Dr. Stoddard continues her research at the Stoddard Lab. Yes, it is named after her. At Princeton, where five other women ornithologists are also studying birds. So that makes you even look at birds with their colors, or even a, a bird that we would think is drab, differently. Absolutely. Because what we see is not what birds see. Absolutely, you're right. We here in uh, the Southwest Desert, we're all like, oh, they're so drab and they're brown. Well, looking through a bird's eyes, they might not be that drab brown color. So, yeah, it's... It's really mind-blowing, and this tetracolor space just seems like it's not really going to ever allow us to see exactly that color because we're not capable of that, but it just tells us there's so much more going on with that red cardinal. He's not just red. There's all sorts of things going on with him. So I was mind-blown with this one as well. Whew. All right. So uh, woman number three is Gabrielle. Oh, no, this is four. We're on to four. Four. Okay. Sorry. We got all excited there. <laughs> Miss well, I, I lost count. Um, Gabrielle. Gabriella. Gabrielle Nevitt. Nevitt. Studying avia, avian olfaction. 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 So smell. Which is smell. Yes. I thought it was smell, but I, okay. Birds can't smell, right? Well, that's what we always thought, except the turkey vulture, of course. When Gabriella, she'll make me say her name twice, Gabriella <laughs> Nevitt decided to research avian olfaction. 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 <laughs> I know you got the hard one this time. <laughs> uh, capabilities in seabirds. She came up against this old adage, this old age prejudice. She was told this line of research is dead, a dead end, but she refused to listen. And now she's the head of the sensor. <laughs> right. <laughs> figures. The sensor, sensor, sorry. Sensory. Sensory. Ecology Lab at the University of California, Davis. Right. And she has proven this long-held truth wrong. Huh. Birds can smell. Well, that's, that's news. It is news. So Dr. Nevitt is focusing her studies on the tube-nosed seabirds, such as the petrels and albatross. These birds spend most of their lives on the, on the wing over, over, over open ocean and eat prey, such as krill and fish and dead squid. 
that has floated to the surface of the water. How do they find their food in open ocean? We assumed it was by sight, but these birds often travel in dark conditions, whether at night or in fog, and are looking for something tiny in a vast ocean. I just thought they had really good eyes. Yeah. We, know, we now know that these birds are using smell to find their food. That is so interesting. They can detect, detect a chemical called... Kirsten? Sorry. I'll do it. <laughs> Dimethyl sulfide or DMS. I can say DMS. Okay, yeah. DMS. That is released when krill eat plankton. Huh. Yeah. This Do whales then smell plankton? That or I don't krill? know. We'd have to see. I wonder if they use that too. Maybe. This also explains why seabirds eat plastic. As the plastic degrades, it gives off DMS, fooling the birds into thinking their decided prey is wrapped inside the plastic. Oh my gosh. Today, Dr. Nevitt continues to study olfaction. Good. In birds at UC Davis in hopes that a research can help many of our endangered seabirds survive the changing environment of our current world. Yes. So in conclusion, these groundbreaking women of ornithology are leading the way for women in science and opening doors to previously overlooked areas of bird behavior. Please take inspiration from them regardless of who you are. These ladies are amazing role models. Yes, they are. And totally opened up the world. Right. To birds. This I is mean, completely this is new stuff. New stuff that many people, all of them I'm sure at one time in their career has said, no, 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 you need to pick something else. And they all said, eh, I kind of like this idea. And they stuck to it. And now we know so much more about our birds. It's just amazing. And to, um, to that, learning about, the more we learn about birds, the more we can work for conservation. Absolutely. And if we can save the birds or a bird or a bird species then we can actually save ourselves because we're all interconnected yep so it's just amazing and speaking of that saving things uh the plant spotlight yes. today is a little bit of a different plant spotlight we're going to look at globe chamomile also known as stink net and this one is a different type of plant spotlight this week it is about an invasive plant that is taking over our desert so this is a no no this is a bad plant spotlight Globe chamomile, or stinknet, is a native South African plant, and it is a prolific perennial plant. It will come up every year, and it will reseed itself, and it just gets crazy. And Kirsten doesn't like it. Oh, God, I don't <laughs> like it at all. It actually begins sprouting in late January, and it starts to seed in February. Oh, my God. It can go through three generations of plants by November. Wow. Yes. When it's left to its own, it will it's blanket. Like the doves of the plant world. Right. It is like the doves of the plant world. <laughs> When left to its own, it will blanket a desert landscape after only a few years, actually really almost a year, essentially choking out any of our natives. When it dries out in the heat of the summer, it becomes tinder for fires, and it is one of the reasons that our wildfires have burned so hot and fast these last few years. Stink that. Ugh. Recognizing this plant is easy. After the first time you see it, you will not forget it. The first year that I lived out in my house in Apache Junction, I was like, oh, look at this pretty plant. It's so pretty. It's nice and green. It's got this really good. And then I was like, oh, no. I found out what it was, and I was like, oh, get out. And I just went through. <laughs> we live on an acre. I went through the whole thing just digging up everything that I could find. Um, so once you see it, it is actually a bright green with delicate lacy leaves. It's really very pretty. Like I said, um, they can grow from two inches to 24 inches high and the flower is a bright yellow ball. That's why it's called globe chamomile. 
and it blooms at the top of the green stalk. It really is lovely to look at. And when you have a whole field of it, you're like, wow, it's so pretty. And then you find out what it is and you're like, oh, God. I have to get rid of all of that. <laughs> I got to get rid of all that. Yeah. <laughs> it also has a very distinct pungent smell when disturbed. So it's called chamomile because of that um, really pungent smell of, I mean, it's not a horrible smell, but it's very, very pungent. Um, the bloom is full of seeds. This is where it gets you. Each ball can have 100 seeds on it. And each plant can have 10 or more flowers. Ugh. And the seeds are light and they're easily spread by the wind. So the only real way to combat this horribly invasive weed is to pull it up. So remember to wear gloves or your hands will smell like stink net all day. Um, if you can get ahead of it in February, which is what my husband and I are doing right now, we're still battling it and it's March. But if you can get ahead of it in February before it goes to seed, you can actually stop the cycle for the year. Um, it does work because we did it at uh, my house two years ago. We got ahead of it and didn't have any of it come up the following year. Woo! We were so excited. I know. And um, then you told me that. Yes. You I it again. Yes, yes. I wish it was the end of it, but all we got was one year reprieve because we're back to battling it again. But um, one of the other things is don't burn it. Do not burn it. Um, I have a neighbor who burns everything. And the first year they saw us digging this up, they're like, oh, they're so pretty. Why are you digging it up? And we let them know. Which is a little disappointing because they've lived here much, much longer than us. And uh, she's like, oh, well, can we burn it? Because they burn all of their yard debris. And I was like, no, no, no. It's highly noxious and the fumes are dangerous to inhale. Uh, traditional weed killers such as Roundup or any of those ones that you can buy in the store don't work either. This thing is hardy. Um, so, of course, here um, we encourage you not to use weed killer anyways because it's harmful to our birds. Um, but anytime you see stink neck, pull it up. If you're walking in your local park and you see the stink net, pull it up. No one is going to get mad at you. Um, if you don't have it in your yard, thank the lucky stars that you don't have it. Because <laughs> this is spreading all yes. over the place. Yes, because they have programs to dig it up. Yes, and they do. So if you don't have it in your yard and you would like to help uh, get rid of the stink net on a larger scale, you can uh, contact friends of the Tonto National Forest. And they have a program that trains volunteers to remove weeds from our beautiful Tonto Forest and help map where it's popping up. So you could just go to friendsofthetonto.org to find out how you can help. That's awesome. I'll yes, it is. Steve on the list. He likes to weed. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Stink nets, we're coming for you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. And we really hope that you are inspired by our women of ornithology this session.